Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, buddy. My name is Nate, if I haven't met you yet, and I am so happy that you've joined online or you're in the room, especially to anybody who's new. Like, I know coming to church, if you haven't been before, it's been a long time, can be terrifying. We hope that this is a really safe place for you to explore a dangerous message. So the message of Jesus could change your life, but it's a safe place to explore that. And also, one other thing I want you to know, um, this is a place where it's okay not to be okay. So uh, if you're looking for a church where everybody's got it all together, you're going to be sorely disappointed because I'm not okay and the person sitting next to you is not okay and you're not okay. And that's why we need Jesus. Uh, I am jet lagged. I, uh, my wife and my two youngest sons, we had the opportunity to fly across an ocean to uh, another nation where one of our kids lives with her family and experience time in uh, a nation that's over 99% Muslim. And uh, it was a fascinating experience. 1.9 billion people on planet Earth um, worship Allah. And it was my first time in a nation that is, you know, the vast, vast majority would be Muslim. And I learned so much, like, just have new ways to pray. It was an incredible experience. I have not adjusted. I fell asleep at 5.30 this morning. Slept for a couple hours. Here I am. So if I say something ridiculous, it's not my fault. Okay, I'm sleep deprived. So I'm excited about jumping into a new study. We have a tradition, I think for about 10 years we've done this. In January, we single out one book in the Bible. If you're not terribly familiar with the Bible, it's divided into two parts. The Old Testament, about two-thirds are the books that were written before Jesus. And then the New Testament are the books written after Jesus came. There's 66 books, over 40 authors written over centuries. And we're gonna just hone in and look at one book. It's the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy is a little bit unique. It's called a pastoral epistle. Epistle means letter. So it's a pastoral letter. Most of Paul's writings, he wrote almost two thirds of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul typically wrote to churches, so an entire region. So the book of Romans was written to the followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. Corinthians, first and second, written to the believers in Jesus in the city of Corinth. But there's three books that he writes to individual pastors. That would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. And so this is a letter that Paul is writing to a man that he had met over a decade before by the name of Timothy. Timothy lived in a city called Lystra and Paul saw something significant in Timothy and invited him into his life. And he, we'll read in just a moment, he calls him his spiritual son. And so for over a decade, they traveled together. Paul moves throughout the Roman world at least three different times. And he just visits new places, new cultures, and plants churches and tells people about who Jesus is. And Timothy comes along in the journey. But somewhere along the line, 
Paul sent Timothy back to a city called Ephesus. And he told Timothy, Timothy, I need you to stay here and I want you to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. I wanna show you a map just so that we can kind of get in our minds where this is happening and we'll talk a little bit about when. This is the city of Ephesus. During the first century, it was probably the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. Somewhere between 500,000 and 750,000 people lived there. If you go today, this is what we call Turkey today. If you go today, only about 15, 12 to 15% of the city has been unearthed. And just that 12 to 15% is amazing. Like a, a cultural experience, these ruins. And you realize that uh, the apostle John lived here. We realized that Paul spent three years of his life here. Paul spent longer in Ephesus than any other city. And this is where Timothy was. So it's this really important city. It was a, a port city, huge for trade. Uh, due to an earthquake and due to some land movement, what was once a port city is now about two miles inland. The ocean's two miles away. So the city was eventually abandoned. But Paul had come here earlier in his life and he brought Timothy and he planted a church. You can read about this in the book of Acts chapter uh, 19. In chapter 19, this amazing transformation happens. There's a riot because people who make idols feel threatened because so many people are following Jesus. And then sometime later, this book is written oh, probably between 63 and 65 AD. Paul ends up in Rome in prison. Emperor Nero has come to the throne and Nero is uh, mentally unstable. He wants to remake Rome. He wants to make a name for himself. And so we believe that he burned a quarter of the city. It was known as the quarter where all the poor people could live. And he wanted to transform that. So he burns it down and he's going to build his golden city. So he gets rid of everybody that he deems um, not valuable. And he's going to build this new golden city. But the the Romans um, are furious at him, and so he does this. He blames it on the Christians. And this is the first persecution against the followers of Jesus. Peter is arrested. Paul is arrested. Peter will end up being crucified. Paul is released from prison. And then we read all the way up till Acts chapter 28. It ends abruptly. And what we're about to read happens somewhere after that where Paul is now going to, he hears reports of what's happening and he's going to write to Timothy in Ephesus, this very important letter. So here's why we do a book study at the beginning of the year. I would love, wherever you're at in your own biblical familiarity or what habits you have with the Bible, I would love if it fits into your schedule for you to join in just reading through this book. And you might say, well, you're teaching it. Why should I read it? Well, I will do my best to teach this book but here's what I know. I, I firmly believe this, that when you sit down with the Bible and the book of First Timothy, bring with you a pen and a blank piece of paper. And here's what I am so confident of, that Jesus says, whenever you are reading, searching, wanting to grow, that you and I have available to us a tutor, a teacher, the Holy Spirit. And so as you sit down with this book, I am confident that questions will come to mind, observations, things that I never considered, things that I never saw, but the Lord will teach you 
And I would love it if we could grow through this book together. So I'd invite you in for the next several weeks. We'll be working our way through this book. So let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, not only is there this geographically where it's at, written 63, 65 AD, there's something else in the backdrop of this great city of Ephesus, which is going to impact how you read and understand this book significantly. Because later in the book, there's going to be all these gender questions, right? Women, leadership, all of this. And if you don't have this in the back of your mind, we're going to miss a big part of what is happening. So here's something peculiar that was in the city of Ephesus. Next slide, please. This is the temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending if you're Roman or Greek. She's Diana or Artemis. It is completely destroyed. All that are left are several of these columns. It was built on unstable ground, an earthquake hit, and it was destroyed. But this, when Paul writes this book, this is one of the seven wonders of the world. We have records of people who visit. They travel from all over the Roman Empire to come to Ephesus to worship Diana or Artemis. And this is an extraordinary place. One of the unique aspects about the Temple of Diana is it is a, she's a female goddess, and the entire system of religion is run by women. It's the only one in all of the ancient Greek and Roman world where women serve as the priestesses and women lead the religious movements here in the city of Ephesus. And that is going to have some unique implications into the book. So as we read this book, here's two things. I'll, I'll tell you beforehand what we're going to look at. One, we're going to look at identity issues. Paul is going to speak to Timothy. Timothy who is by nature a bit passive, who is easily intimidated and who wants to quit. He's kind of done pastoring the people in Ephesus because there's all this controversy and there are these strong personalities. And he just, he's like, I, I don't think I'm cut out for this. And Paul's going to talk to him about identity issues, which are absolutely essential. And then the second thing we'll look at in chapter one is this. The deformation of the gospel. That when Paul came to Ephesus eight years before this book is written, he said, I came and I shared the gospel, which means good news. The essentials of who Jesus is and what he came to do and now Paul being away has heard this, that people are coming in and attempting to deform the gospel, to add things, to change things, to say, hey, there's actually special, special knowledge and Paul didn't tell you everything. You also need to do this and that and the other thing. And so we'll look at identity and the essence or the purity of the gospel. You ready? We're gonna read almost the whole chapter together. Here we go. And remember, this is a personal letter, but Paul is going to talk a lot about himself, and that's part of the identity issue. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Big statement. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but he has been commissioned by God. He says, that's who I am. Our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, so Paul has already urged him once, stay there in Ephesus. 
Don't leave, don't give up, so that you may, really strong word, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Meaning, this has gone on for some time, that the gospel is being distorted, and he says, I need you to tell them, to command them to stop, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We'll explore what he's getting at in, the, in just a moment. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. So Paul says this, when people get distracted, when the gospel is being distorted, what ends up happening is there is a lack of love. There is contention. The good news isn't advanced. And he goes, the whole point of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that we would love one another. And if there is teaching that is keeping you from loving other people, we know that that's false teaching, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the genesis of true love. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. It's interesting. Paul says this, sometimes false teachers, they don't know what they're talking about, but they are persuasive and they are eloquent. And you get into a discussion, you're like, this person seems so much smarter than I am and they're so eloquent and they're so persuasive that you, you just don't know what to believe anymore. He says, they don't know what they're talking about. You're gonna have to stand up to that. We know that the law is good. When he says law, he's referring to the Old Testament. If one uses it properly, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. So here's one of the first questions that enters into the early church. Predominantly, it's Jewish at its origins. And the Jewish people have shaped their entire culture, their lives, their moralities, their ethics, their holidays, all out of the Old Testament law. And so the question is this, well, when Jesus comes to earth, what do we do with the Old Testament? How much of it do we need to apply? How Jewish do non-Jewish people need to become when they become followers of Jesus? And this is what Paul says. This is an extraordinary statement. He says, the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. So that is not an exhaustive list, but a representative list. He says, this is who needs the law. All these people that have no idea who God is, what he created the human beings for. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now this is a, you may not be able to see this in your version of the Bible, but this is actually a poem. And 1 Timothy is unique in that Paul adds three poems interspersed throughout the book. Now to the king eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, let's talk a little bit about 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'd like to explore the essentials of identity. So identity essentials first and foremost. So why would Paul, in, in a personal letter, remember this isn't a letter that's going to be read to an entire church. And this is to a guy that Paul has known for at least a decade. Why does he get so deeply involved in talking to Timothy about his own life and his own experiences and who he is? Here's why. Because Timothy, if there's one thing we know about him from his time in Ephesus, throughout the book of Acts, First and Second Timothy, we know that he has always dealt with a bit of an identity crisis. That we have malformed identities. Okay? And I, I don't think Timothy is the only person. <laughs> I think every person watching, every person in this room, every person that has ever lived, one of the things that human beings are so susceptible to is malformed identity, an unhealthy sense of self. And it can become unhealthy for a myriad of different reasons. It can become unhealthy because of things that people said to us, lies that the enemy spoke through someone else. It told us something that we were worthless, that we were not valuable, and we've embraced that and it's malformed our identity. Our identity can be linked to things that just aren't healthy, from my vocation to my recreation to my failures from the past, or our identity can be malformed because of pride and arrogance. That I think more highly of myself than I ought, therefore I have a malformed or unhealthy identity, and Timothy is going to deal with a ton of identity issues. Here's one example. Timothy is uh, culturally stuck between two worlds. Uh, next week we'll read this. That his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And so for all of Timothy's life, he's just not Jewish enough for the Jewish people. And he's not Greek enough for the Greek people. When he's around Jewish people, they tell him, you're not really one of us. Because you're not circumcised. The Gentile people... You're not really one of us. And so he has this, this sense of he's a little bit lost and he draws back and he tends to be fearful and passive. And here's what Paul says to him. Listen, Timothy, I need you to stay and I need you to be brave and I need you to have a proper perspective regarding who you are. How does Paul do this? First, Paul talks a little bit about who he was who he was. Paul goes backwards and he says, you have to know who you were if you want to understand who you are. Who was Paul? Well, Paul says, to me, I want to tell you some things about my past. I was a blasphemer. 
I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. Now, what is Paul talking about? Well, Paul is going back. You can read this in Acts chapter 7 through Acts chapter 9. Paul, whose original name was Saul, was a, he was a superstar in the Jewish world. He was highly educated, highly motivated. And he is so committed to the ancient Jewish religion that while he's a young man in power, he sees this Jesus movement continuing to grow. At the end of Acts chapter 6, we read this. It said that even many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became followers of Jesus. And that like snaps things for Paul. Paul says, this is not okay. And so he goes to the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the day, and he asks for powers to be able to squelch, to be able to stop the early followers of Jesus. They called themselves the way. And so Paul is endorsed, and then he seems to be the leading figure, and he travels throughout the Jewish towns looking for people who are claiming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And here's what he does. He incarcerates them. He rips families apart. He's doing everything he can to destroy this early Jesus movement. He's a violent man and he is a blasphemer. And all that changes two chapters later in Acts chapter nine, when Saul, who is going towards Damascus, another city, to find more Christians to destroy the church, and Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, I'm gonna change your perspective. I'm gonna change your name. You're gonna go from Saul to Paul and you are going to be the person I'm going to use to build the church among the non-Jewish people in this world. And like, Paul's a good Jew. Like he's never even interacted with non-Jews. He's like, are you kidding me? No way. And, and, and Jesus says this to him, you're gonna stand before kings and tell them who Jesus is. So Paul's life is completely reoriented. And so here's what Paul does. He's looking at Timothy and his weakness, his malformed identity. And he says this, Timothy, you have to look at who you were. He says, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. Until I came face to face with Jesus. And that is no longer my identity. But I'm always gonna remember who I was. Because I remember if it wasn't for Jesus, that's who I'd be. Part of having a healthy identity, ladies and gentlemen, would be this, is remembering who you are. What are your natural tendencies? And understanding that if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd still be here. The challenge is this, is sometimes we look back and we let our former self begin to define our new self. Paul always uses past tense. I was, not I am. He says, I'm a changed man, but I'm gonna remember who I was because without Jesus, that's where I would still be. I never wanna think that I've done this myself. Paul's not gonna say, hey, I've planted all these churches, I've become the apostle to the Gentile world because I'm so sharp. No, he goes, man, I would still be out there blaspheming against God and I would be a violent man except for Jesus. When we let our past identify us, we find ourselves in a world of hurt, a world of shame. A few years back, um, my kids found my high school letter jacket. And apparently, 
every decade it shrinks the size because I couldn't, I couldn't get it on anymore. And they were like howling. They were howling when they found it. And it, like, I thought it was so cool in 1989, um, but they pull it out and they're like dead. What is this? And what really made them curious was this, is um, uh, kind of my main sport was wrestling and we had this tradition in the late 80s. I know this is gonna sound silly to you, but it was so cool then. that Every time we pinned somebody in wrestling, Coach gave us a diaper pin, right? A diaper pin, with either uh, baby blue or red. And so I had, I think it was 64 diaper pins on the left side of my letter jacket. Like I jingled when I walked. And I remember at the time I would wear that, and like, right? But a couple decades later, you get that thing out and you're like, what was I thinking? And they're just howling. And then they find over here, there's sports things. And then over here, they're, I, like I had kind of hidden it. It was a, a music symbol. And they're like, dad, were you like a band guy? I'm like, well, yeah, I did letter in music. But let me tell you the story. When I was a freshman in high school, I noticed this group of people who constantly got out of class. Like they were just always leaving. And I thought, I want to do whatever they're doing. <laughs> and so I sought them out and they were part of this singing ensemble. They were really, really good. And so I tried out and I was the only person who couldn't read music, but I was also the only person who could sing the baritone and bass part. And so they let me in. And the, the, the choir director would record on old fashioned tapes, would record my part and I would memorize it because I couldn't read music. And like for the next three years of high school, I was constantly out of class. I'm like, I wore that thing with pride because it kept me out of class. It was fantastic. If, if my identity was rooted there, that's terribly unhealthy, right? I mean, things have got to change. And Paul says, this is who I was. And I'm always gonna remember it because that's not who I am any longer. So you understand who you were. Hold on to that. But the second part of forming good identity is this, is know what you have received. Know what you have received. So in this letter to Timothy, Paul begins to list all the things that he's received from the Father. And here's Paul's concept of identity. Paul's concept of identity is this, understand that you are a beneficiary. Understand that your identity has nothing to do with your own power, capacity, intelligence, good looks, whatever it is. He says, your identity is this. It is based in the fact that God has given you things. You are a beneficiary from God. He has granted you these unique things. In fact, he lists some of them out. Here's what he's received. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. Okay, so Timothy tends to be weak. But Paul is strong. At this point in his life, this man is covered in scars. He has been beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked. He's been stoned. They thought they actually killed him. It, uh, multiple times he's beaten to within an inch of his life. And he, he never seems afraid. He just goes to the next city and the next city. And Paul says this, you wanna know why I'm strong? 
It's because Christ Jesus has given me strength. My identity is not based upon there's some internal thing that's so strong. It's just God gives me strength. That he has considered me trustworthy in appointing me to this service. He says, Timothy, like I, I was the guy who hated the church. And he trusted me with something new, a new vision, a new mission in life. And he's appointed me to this. Timothy, he trusts you. And you've been appointed. That's a gift from God. He goes on to say, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I'm the beneficiary of mercy. That God just keeps giving me mercy. When I make mistakes, he gives me more mercy. He goes on to say, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul says this, you want to know what my identity is based on? It's based on this, that God pours abundantly grace, faith, and love into my life. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough grace. I don't have enough love. But I stand here and God generously pours things into my life. It's like he showers them upon me in excess and that's how I keep going. My identity is not based upon what I have internally, how strong I am, not on my past, not on my failures. My identity is based upon this. I am a recipient of the goodness of God. And Timothy, if your identity is gonna waver because there's strong people that make a lot of noise and they intimidate you. Timothy, what you have to do is stand before God and let him give you strength. You need to stand before God and let him give you mercy and grace and faith and love because without that, your identity will always be malformed. It will always be unhealthy. And for each and every one of us, I would just say this. There have been countless books written about identity. There's all kinds of concepts about how you have a healthy identity. Like I want to go with Paul. Paul says, here's how my identity stays strong. I remember who I was without him. And I realized if it wasn't for him, I'd still be there. And I stand before him. And I believe in this generous, gracious God who pours strength, mercy, grace, love, faith into my life. And so when the next challenge comes in front of me, I don't have to go like, I can, I can do this. I look at the challenging situation and I say, God, I need you. Would you shape me? Would you give me the strength for this next thing? Would you give me mercy and love? I can't love this person, God. Would you give me love? And my identity is shaped on this dynamic, ongoing relationship with Jesus. Where I'm not trying to mine my own resources. I'm receiving the abundance of his resources. Healthy identity is not based upon achievements or internal fortitude. Healthy identity is based upon a dynamic relationship with Jesus who gives you everything that you need. It's not yours, it's his and they are gifts. And so when I face any challenge, it's not about how brave I am. It's about how kind God is. Identity. Here's the second thing that Paul wants to address in chapter one. This deformed gospel. 
okay, the formed gospel. That eight years ago, when Paul was there and he planted the church, he planted the church with this good news, the original good news, which was all about the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, how it makes relationship with God possible. But since he has left, the good news has been altered. So staying good news or gospel centric. Okay, how do you stay good news centered? Because every church, every culture is going to do this. We tend to like, wow, the message of Jesus is incredible. But as time goes on, it begins to warp and deform in different ways. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I need you to have a strong identity. I need you to stand before Jesus and let him fill you with everything that you need for your challenging job so that you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines. Let's explore a little bit about what's happening. One, there's a distortion of the Old Testament law. Okay, so we don't know all the details, but Paul says this. He goes, here's what people are doing. They are getting into myths and endless genealogies. And they're also, we'll read later in the book, they're applying like dietary restrictions from the Old Testament onto the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. And he says, he says, Timothy, you have to have a strong identity so you can stand up and say, no, that is not okay. We will not distort the gospel. So the ancient law, Paul says this, it is not for the followers of Jesus. We do not find relationship with God by following all of the Old Testament law. Because here's what happens in Paul's absence, there are Jewish people who are like, what do we do with this? We still want to do all this. So they still aren't eating pork and they still aren't bringing life plants into their home and not wearing mixed fabric things. And they, they're feeling as if some effort of their own can achieve greater salvation with God. And Paul says, you have to stop that. You have to get rid of this concept that you achieve grace from God. Grace from God came through the cross of Jesus Christ. You're saved by that and that alone, not through your own morality or ethics or how sincere you are in your efforts to follow God. He says, we need to cut down to the essentials that is Jesus. He says, the law, the law is important, but the law is not how you are saved. He says, the law what? He goes, it's for people that don't know anything. If they're completely ignorant. Uh, an example, a couple years ago, uh, Paul Greer, who's our missions coordinator for the movement we're a part of, took me to Papua New Guinea. 50 years before in Papua New Guinea, island nation, 800 languages spoken. And the entire island nation was cannibalistic headhunters. The first missionaries who went, like several of them died, but the ones who survived said, hey, you guys shouldn't kill each other and eat brains. Like, not good. They're like, Why? We've been doing this forever. It was their ethic, right? You gain power by killing your enemy and eating their body. And they go through the Old Testament. Things like death, murder, not okay. The law is for them. Paul says the law is for all those people. Even today, the law, you might think, hey, well, what's the purpose of the law? It's to help us understand who God is. An example in our world would be um, human sexuality being redefined, uh, boy, this seems right to me. The law is here so I can know God's expectations, what he created us for. So Paul says, you've got to stop people superimposing the law into the gospel. 
It's not okay. Myths and endless genealogies. In the first century, there's this emergence of this thing called Gnosticism, and it is coming from Jewish teachers. Gnosticism means knowledge, so it was a religion of special knowledge. So you're not going to believe this, but in the first century in Ephesus, there were people, Jewish teachers, who decided that there were secret messages hidden in the Bible. And they had figured out the Bible code. And they did things like, we'll take all the alphabet of the Hebrew language and we'll give it a numeric equivalence. And when we put it all together and calculate it, it'll tell us mysteries that no one else knows. Endless myths and genealogies. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. Isn't Jesus enough? I know that sounds silly, but there are still books being written by, like that. You've seen them, like the hidden message of the Bible. I worked, while I was in college, I worked at this book publishing house, and we published so many awful books about like predicting when Jesus would come back and like messages in the Bible. And I just felt so dirty every time I would fulfill an order and put those in. It was my job. I'm like, I'm so sorry, God. I pray they don't read this, right? Send it off. Because there's something still within humanity that we're like, oh, we got to know more. We got to know more. And Paul says, you don't have to know more. He is enough. Paul says to Timothy, focus on the good news. I want to go back and reread the last two verses. So in, in a world where we get so distracted and we want special knowledge, I, like, just, just let this soak in how poignant this is. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, Timothy, I need you to embed this into your life. I, I need you to make this central to the church in Ephesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to open up our eyes to new mysteries. He didn't come into the world to make us act better. What did he come into the world for? Save sinners, because sinners could not save themselves. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners in Ephesus. And sinners in Yellowstone County, and sinners wherever you live. Why did Jesus come to earth to save sinners of whom I am the worst? Here's what you have to know. When you get all inflated and you wanna alter the gospel and you think you've got special knowledge, always remember that no one needed a savior more than you do. I'm the worst, Paul says. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to save someone like me. And if I don't remember that, I begin to alter Christianity. And we get into this whole thing where Paul says, you got to stop it because all those other things don't teach an ethic of love. You're just fighting about just fractional things that don't even matter. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... 
Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What Jesus did in my life, what Jesus is doing in your life, is a display for the rest of the world. Now, here's this poem. To the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that he ends it this way. Timothy, it is not about you. In the end, the church exists, the followers of Jesus exist, what? To magnify, to point to, to glorify the king who is immortal, the king who is able. This is not about us. This is about him. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.